Born in Springville. This is what Springville looks like on Labor Day weekend. This is pretty good. This is like a feather in your cap. You can rub this in for everybody who's not here and are still working on their Muskoka chair tans, right? Uh, but uh, it's my uh, pleasure to finish off our series in James. We've been working through James over the last several weeks. And uh, again, it's one of my favorite books for sure, just because of its practicality. But also, James addresses some really uncomfortable things and some really convicting things. And so throughout this series, we've really just looked at real faith something, right? So we've looked at James kind of touching on what authentic Christian living looks like. Real faith shows up how? Well, it works. It obeys. That faith without works is dead, right? James is showing us that a faith that doesn't actually change our life might not be what? Well, a real faith, right? Then we looked at James talking about real faith and how it changes our speech, what we do with our, our tongue, our words, integrity, and wholeness with our words and how we use them to build up and not tear down. And then James also moved on to show that real faith shows up in dependence, right? Dependence and humility, not independence from God, like, hey, I'm killing it, I'm a Christian, I'm doing a good job, but actual continual growth independence upon God, that that's evidence of real faith. And then last week, we looked specifically at real faith and how it relates to trials. Tough stuff. Stuff in life that's just like, man, this is hard. And James showed us that real faith actually perseveres. It pushes through it. It's maintained throughout suffering. And then it's held in that tension of hard stuff, but a good God, Right? This week, we're going to finish it off, and James, in good James fashion, he ends very abruptly. Like, he doesn't do what Paul or Peter does with, like, hey, send my greetings to Timothy, and blah, 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 right? Paul loves that stuff, right? His, like, greeting at the, at the beginning and his end of the email will be the longest parts of Paul's um, emails to you and I today, right? James doesn't do that. He ends quite abruptly, and he's looking specifically at real faith praying, that real faith prays. Let me ask you a question before we look at these verses. Because I know for some of us, at the end of summertime, our rhythms get all thrown off. We vacation, we take breaks, we, we tan, we have fun, and we're going into the fall. And for some of us, it's a time to reset. It's a time to set up rhythms and be like, how am I going to then go back in? Okay, ah, kids will be back in school, right? Or whatever it is, I'm back in school, whatever it is, okay? Here's what I want to ask you, though. Right now, if you had to describe your prayer life, what words would you use? to describe your prayer life right now. Not, not like future you in October when you're back in your rhythms and killing it for Jesus, but like right now, how would you describe your prayer life? How would you describe your posture to prayer? And specifically, when do you find that you pray most? Because this is what James is gonna get at. When do you find that you pray most? When things are going really well? Are you praising God in your prayers? You're just like, Jesus, like I just, your goodness towards me is amazing right now. Or do you have the tendency to only go to God when things get kind of, off, off of your control or out of like the perfect little thing that you designed for yourself. And then you're like, God, come on, what? I came up with this perfect plan. Why aren't you like submitting to it? Right, think about it. Think about your prayer life right now. And what words would you just describe your posture to prayer? Because James is gonna get at that. For me, honestly, as I thought about this this week, I, my prayer life lately has been casual. Uh, it's been a little bit rushed. It's been a little bit hurried, I've found. As I just reflect on like, what's my language like in prayer? What's my posture to God when I pray? And so this week I was convicted of that because it's, it's caused me to slow down a little bit more. It's caused me to think about prayer and the beauty, the, the, the majestic thing that prayer is that I'm, I'm not just casually walking in being like, what's up, Daddy God? But that I'm actually coming into the holiest of holies. I'm coming into God's presence and that he wants me there. And that changes your posture to prayer, Amen. 
James is gonna kind of get at this in his James-like way, okay? So let's read the whole thing. We're gonna read seven verses, and then we'll unpack a few things this morning. Verse 13 of chapter five in James, James starts and says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He should sing prayers, sing your praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise them up. Speaking of the last day and resurrection. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah, for example, was a human being just as we are. He was no different. But when he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. That's pretty wild. He closes and he says, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns them back, encourages them back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, this is very James-like. He doesn't, he's not really like trying to unpack it for us and get very nuanced. He's just saying stuff, and then the letter ends. He's just like, I'm out, right? But, but notice what he's doing here. At first glance, these are tough verses because, to be honest, at first glance, it almost seems like James is just like writing a, a formula for us of how to guarantee results with God at first glance. It's like, oh, you're sick? Well, hey, just get the elders. Use some oil. Boom. Healing. Guaranteed. Right? Oh, I mean, you're struggling with something? Well, confess some sins. Get a righteous person, like a really good person, to pray for you. And then, hey, you'll be good. Move on. You'll be good to go. You'll be absolved. And often these verses and verses like this are misused to say exactly that. It gets confused and kind of cherry-picked with like the law of attraction or the power of positive thinking. Whereas if we just believe something enough, we can what? Manifest it, right? I've told you how much I love that word today in our culture. Be like, oh, I just want to, you know, I, I love this award. Thank you for this award, man. Like 11 years, I manifested this, you know? And you're like, okay, cool, <laughs> right? But, but at first glance, James, it's almost like he's saying that. It's like, well, if you just pray the right way, or you do the right thing with the elders of your church, or you kind of, you do that, it's like prayer itself will become like a slot machine. And if you pull it properly, pull the handle the right way, and your faith is done the right way, then God is almost obligated to act. You're almost guaranteeing your ROI on that invested time of your faith. Because God, he must. It's a formula. And this gets kind of like, squashed up with other verses like Matthew eleven twenty four, 24, where Jesus says to his disciples, whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe it, it will be yours. And you're like, man, a verse by, I love that verse. You know why? Because Dustin gets to determine the things he prays for. And if I just prayed enough and I believe it, guess what? Well, God has to do it. It says it right there. The problem with reading scripture like this anytime is that it misses the whole context context of the verses around it, but also the context of the entire Bible, right? And we just spent several weeks going through James. If we paid attention to anything James has been saying, we know that James is not saying what I just said, right? 
that the context of James and the rest of scripture is that living in line with God's will and praying in line with God's good and sovereign will is an exercise of trust and submission, not one of manipulation. And that's what James is starting by underlining. 1 John 5.14 says, the confidence that we have is this, that if we ask anything, what? That we want? No. If we ask anything according to his will, it will be done. That's what James is getting at because the entirety of his letter to the church has been about real faith, not centered on us and what we want or like or what we think life should look like, but real faith showing up in an authentic, humble trust and submission to the God who knows better. Amen? That's what James has been getting. Oh, come on. I know it's Labor Day. Amen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm preaching now. But, but that's what James wants us to see here. That that real faith, authentic faith, is not that we just want God's stuff, is that we want God. It's that we actually want God's will for us more than my own will. That's crazy. Like that tension is wild. And James is kind of like pulling that out for us and holding it up in front of us to say, what is your posture? What is your motive when you pray? How do you approach God in prayer? Right here, it's not about God doing anything for us if we believe enough. It's about God doing anything we, he wants because we trust him. That's this. And the witness of scripture, Springville, is exactly that. That prayer is communication, for sure. But more than that, it's being in the presence of God as an act of submission to his good and perfect will. And James is building on exactly that. And notice what he says. He right away, he's just like, hey, things going terrible? Pray. Things going awesome? Pray. Are you sick? Pray, right? Are you by yourself? Call. Call the elders. Get into community. Pray, right? Do you see what he's doing there? He's trying to show us that prayer itself, that real faith shows up in a life saturated by prayer. Not just when things are killing it and you're like, God, you're so good. Hashtag blessed, right? Thank, thank you, God. Or when things are really bad. Okay, things didn't go to plan, according to plan, God. So, hey, could you bail me out? Like, could you get me out of here? but that we are actually to be people who pray. Like our life is saturated by prayer, highs and lows. When things are good, we pray. When things are tough, we pray. When things are just mediocre and dry and kind of boring, we pray. That's what James is getting at here. That's got to speak to some of us today. Some of us are suffering. I said last week that there's only three types of people in this room. Some of us are in a trial right now. Some of us are just coming out of one and the rest of us are about to head into one. And James is anchoring us with a life saturated by prayer in the highs and lows because why? It communicates trust. So think about it. Who do you go to first when you get good news? You get a promotion, right? You know, you aced a test, whatever it is, right? You got that house, you got that apartment, whatever it is, like that good news. Who do you call first? What about when you get that bad news? When you get that phone call from the doctor and it's that diagnosis? Or you get that phone call and it's, it's the loss of a loved one? Or it's unexpected tragedy that you didn't see coming? Who do you call first? James is calling our attention to exactly that. And he's saying that prayer for the highs and the lows is that we would trust God so much with the entirety of our life that in the highs and lows, we would go to him first. That that's what our knee-jerk reaction, that real faith shows up with us going to God first. Not, not calling somebody else and telling them, but actually going to God first. 
right? Going to him with our hard stuff, going to him with our good stuff, right? This is the same as like the Apostle Paul saying, pray without ceasing, right? Meaning like, that's not like pray without ceasing, like mutter under your breath at all times in Dollarama, right? Just like, Lord, I just want to mention, oh, new forks, right? Like, that, that's not this, but pray without ceasing is to live a life that it's in constant communication with God, but also in God's presence. That's what pray, praying without ceasing looks like. I read something uh, a couple weeks ago about James, um, the church historian Eusebius, who uh, lived during the 300s. He wrote something about James, and I want to I tell you this because James is leading by example here. Here's what he said about James. He said, quote, James, so his knees, James, grew hard like a camel's, because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. Like James is speaking from example here. It's not just like throwing us some trite thing of like, hey, go and do this. I'm not going to do it. He led by example in this as a leader. That he actually led a life of constant prayer. Good stuff, hard stuff, pray. Right? James' calloused knees were a testimony to the fact that he lived a life of prayer. And you know why I think he did this? Because he watched his big brother Jesus. Now listen, Jesus did lots of things, but you cannot get away, as you read through the Gospels, without a doubt, the center point of Jesus' life was prayer. So many times in the black letters that we kind of skip sometimes, you have, the, you have the disciples, like, they'll wake up, and they'll be like, Jesus is gone, right? And then they'll go find him on a mountain. It's like, where, where were you? It's like, I was praying. I was talking to the Father, right? Or he'll, like, finish preaching, and they'll be like, great, let's keep praying. Let's have a prayer meeting right here. And Jesus is like, I'm getting in the boat because I'm going over there to talk to my Father, Right? Over and over and over again, you can see the center point, the very power and presence of God is actually made available through our commitment to pray. So listen, real faith isn't just like believing Christian stuff, right? The message of Christianity. It's also living with the methods of Christianity. That we actually would be people who go the way of Jesus, amen? That we go after Jesus, that Jesus models certain things for us and we imperfectly fumble towards him, Right? and do the things that he did. That is real faith. And prayer is one of the biggest pieces of that. Confession time. If I'm honest, and hey, let's be honest, this is church, no room for that, right? But if I'm honest, prayer, when it comes to the spiritual disciplines and Christian habits, prayer is the one I struggle with the most. Because to me, sometimes, um, it it feels boring, it feels pointless, uh, I'm unengaged. My ADHD is wild, right? It seems unstimulating to me. So it is really, it's a habit. And listen, prayer is hard when we have Netflix and YouTube and Instagram. Prayer is hard. Like in our digital age, prayer is really hard. And then when you do find yourself praying, you pray like in general, everything's, uh, hey God, Lord, I pray for world peace, Right? Because you just like, you're just, anybody else in here? Like, right? Like, I'm, I can't be the only one that struggles with this kind of habit of communication with God, but also coming into the presence of God. And I think sometimes we forget that prayer isn't just about things that I'm going to say to God, but it's actually about being in his presence and listening out for God. I remember a quote from Mother Teresa in an interview. They asked her about prayer because she's Mother Teresa, And they said, hey, so how do you, like, what do you do when you pray? What do you say when you pray? And she said, I don't say very much. And he's like, okay, well, what what does God say? Well, he doesn't say very much either. And then she went on to describe that prayer is far more than just saying stuff or trying to listen for, like, a special revelatory word, but that it has everything to do with coming fully, vulnerable, intimately into the presence of God. 
that that's this right here, but it's hard. And this is not a new problem. Like we see the disciples doing this all. I love the disciples because they're just a train wreck, right? In Luke 22, it's probably my favorite example. Jesus takes his disciples up to the Mount of Olives to, to pray. <laughs> He's like, we're gonna go pray now, right? And then he says, okay, guys, pray so you don't fall into temptation. And then what do they do? They fall asleep, right? <laughs> like they fall asleep. And Jesus comes back. He's like, oh, really, right? And then right after that, poor Peter tries to like cut a Roman soldier's head off. And then he goes and denies Jesus publicly to a teenage girl because he feels peer pressure from a teenager, right? Like, you're like, what? Like, not a good look at all, right? But, but, but listen, as goofy as that is, and as flawed as the disciples are, don't miss the point about prayer and how Jesus practiced it. Because listen, when we fail to pray in private, we will fall in public. When we fail to pray in private, we will fall in public. That's our brother Peter. We, need, we have lots of examples of that. We always drift from God privately before we do publicly. And this is calling us back to that because prayer gets at that part of your, your and my life that we can't manufacture anymore. I can't airbrush a version of me when I go to God in prayer, amen? I can't do it anymore. And prayer is the language of relationship. It's the mother tongue that we use with God. That we're talking with God, yes, but that we're also listening for God and we're being with God. That that's prayer wrapped up right there. Every time Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer, oh, is that a bug? It's a swarm of locusts. Um, sorry, whoa. Um, every time Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer, he shows them that it is primarily relational and not functional. And some of us need to get that. It's about who, not the what, right? And we know this. Communication is one of the most important aspects of any relationship, right? Number one reason for divorce, lack of communication, a breakdown of communication, right? Communication is so important for the health of a relationship. And that's exactly this. Uh, I don't have time as usual, but here's what we're going to do. Real quick, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he starts with how not to pray. We're going to hit that and then we're going to move on and finish, okay? Right before the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches them how not to pray and then he goes in how to pray. And I love this because Jesus is stressing the relational part of prayer. Okay, he says how not to pray and two things he highlights. First, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Okay, don't pray like a hypocrite. Don't wear a mask. That's what hypocrite means. Don't put a mask on. Don't go to God and all of a sudden you speak in King James when you're going to pray, right? You guys don't talk in King James, but I hear some of you guys pray and you're like, oh, mighty father, sovereign Lord of the universe. I'm like, what? Where did that come from? Unless you're Barb Hill, you can't pray like that. Right? But, but authenticity, that we're going vulnerable, open, fully, fully seen by God, right? Don't pray like a hypocrite. And he, Jesus often will highlight the Pharisees because what? The Pharisees will go out into the street corners, right? And pray in public. And they'll do all this like fancy garb and all this like pomp and circumstance, right? And Jesus is like, they got their reward. And that's like a Jesus jab, right? That, the point of like, they got their reward is that people went, good for you, right? Look at you. That's the reward. But then he says, no, no, no. Real faith, real prayer shows up in private. Don't pray like a hypocrite. And then the second thing he says is don't pray like the Gentiles with empty phrases. Uh, the Greek here is, um, is babble. It's, the, it's where we get the, the concept of uh, automatopoeia, which is a word that's a sound, right? Okay, we're learning some things on Labor Day, baby, right? Onomatopoeia is like woof, right? We know, anybody's dog go woof? No, nobody's dog goes woof, right? 
But what do we do? We spell a sound. That's an automatopoeia. So Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. Just empty phrases that you repeat over and over and over again. That you just go to God and you're like, woof, 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 right? Because why? Well, because you can have the ritual of just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And what? It'd be completely heartless. There's nothing genuine about it, right? You just kind of go, hey, Lord, blah, 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 and you say it over and over every single day. You say the same thing, but your heart's not in it, right? Your mouth is engaged, but your heart is not. Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. Many of us, I think, when we think about prayer, we pray as if God is standing in between us and what is truly good for us. That God, as an all-knowing, all-loving Father, is not actually far more concerned with your well-being than you and I are. And Jesus always highlights exactly that relational invitation to know God as Father. And you know what I was thinking about this week? I am so glad that God said no to some things I prayed. Anybody? Man, if God gave me everything I prayed for, I would be a disaster. I already am, but by God's grace, I'm less of one. But you imagine, like, some of the things I look back on and pray, I'm like, that was a terrible thing to ask for. I'm so gl glad that God, in his all-knowing, all-lovingness, was like, no, Scooter, I'm not going to give you that one, right? And listen, God always answers prayers, but his answers are either yes, no, or wait, right? That's our God. He's like, yes, no, ah, come back to me on that one in a little bit. I'm working some things out here, right? I just happen to be, like, the sovereign Lord of all creation, so just give me a minute. I'll see what I can do to, like, work that one in there, right? Yes, no, wait, I'm so glad God, in his wisdom, has said no to some things that I've asked for. If God gave us everything we asked for, he wouldn't just be unwise, he'd also be unloving, right? That's like, a as a parent, as a dad, if I just said yes to everything, every ridiculous thing that my kids asked for, they'd be a disaster. And they'd be laying in bed, eating orange freezies at 3.30 in the morning, bugged out on red dye number, whatever the bad one is, Right? That would be bad. Personally, I'm so glad. And I think that that's it. Jesus is highlighting that we would come with what we desire, saying, loving Father, here's what I want. Here's what I want, okay? Like we can go and say, God, here's what I want, but let your will be done. I'm gonna hold that lightly. You know why? Because you know better. And if you say no, I'm, guess, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna praise you. I'm gonna pray. Because you know what? That didn't pan out the way I thought it was gonna go, but guess what? You're good. You're good, and your will in my life is more important than my will getting done in my life. So I think right here, James is just pulling us back to exactly this. That prayer is relational, and it's expressed neediness. It's actually expressed desperation. Prayer is about God, but it changes us. I read a book recently by Pastor Tyler Staten called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Um, great title, great book. And here's what he says, listen. Prayer can't be mastered. Some of us are just like, thank God, right? Prayer always means submission. To pray is to willingly put ourselves in the unguarded, exposed position. There is no climb. There is no control. There is no mastery. There is only humility and hope. I love that. To pray is to risk being naive, to risk believing, to risk playing the fool. To pray is to risk trusting someone who might let you down. Now, our good theology tells us, but God never lets us down, right? But just as a human being, if we're honest with the rawness of prayer, it's exactly that. That there is this nakedness, this vulnerability, where we can't hide anymore when we come 
to pray. And that we are to come into prayer, into God's presence, not impressed with ourself, but entirely impressed with who God is. And I'm convinced that prayer is so hard for some of us because there's nobody left to impress. There's nobody left to flex for. It's just me and God. And I honestly think, when we think about our identity, there's three versions of us at all times. There's the version that we think we are. There's the version that other people think we are. And then there's the version of who we truly are. And life kind of exists between like all three of those things. And guess which one prayer gets at? The version of us that we truly are. And I think that that's why it's so challenging. Because prayer is where we're faced with the fact that we're not sovereign anymore. That we're not in control. Even as we work so hard to control every little jot and tittle of our life. That we're not self-made. That we can't manifest anything. Right? That we're not self-sufficient, that we're needy, that we're poor, broken, naked, dependent, and weak. That's what prayer says. So I know, like, that doesn't feel great until we realize that it's poverty of spirit that is the most powerful position and posture before God ever. That God does his best work when we humble ourselves. That God extends grace and mercy to those who would humble themselves in his presence first. So that's the tension, right? It gets at who you truly are when nobody else is watching. That's this. And then notice what James says, and then we'll hit one more thing. Notice what James says about calling the elders. This is really interesting, right? And oil. All the Pentecostals in the house are like, yes, baby, let's go. Where's the oil? Let's go. Or all the essential oil. People are like, yes, baby, let's go, right? But right here, if you notice, he says, call the elders, right, and grab the oil, Okay, now this is interesting because what he's stressing though here, this is, this is important, is that prayer is also a communal activity. That prayer isn't just about me and Jesus, right? Me and Jesus is over here, just me and God, bless you. Me and Jesus just kind of doing our thing. But it's actually an act of community, right? That we're in community and that there's something powerful about praying, not just in community, but also with the leaders of our church because what? They're tasked with overseeing your souls. Yikes. That's kind of a big deal, Right? Hebrews 13 talks about elders being appointed to shepherd the church, care for the church, to take care of the church's doctrine, what we believe, yes, but to also take care of the church's devotion, how we live, and that elders are called and and equipped and qualified to do that for the sake of the health of the local church. That's, That's what elders exist for, right? It stresses that we are in community. We have a responsibility to pray and belong to the local church and its expression in prayer. Now, today, we don't attend church and think like that, right? We think about church about, like, we don't think, like, which, which body am I going to commit to, right? And live under the oversight and the leadership of these elders. Like, we don't talk like that, right? Instead, we talk about church, like, do I like the music? Do I like the worship leader's jeans? Um, you know, do I like the preaching? Do I like the people? How is the kids' program? And how good or bad does the coffee taste, Right? That, right? Scripture t- talks about the church so differently than we do, especially in our Western thing that we've created here, right? We think about it in terms of that, of like, what is the church going to do for me? James is stressing right here, without a doubt, that, that we, he's talking about church so differently than we do, with a picture in our mind of coming under the divine leadership and care of the community itself, that we would come and actually rely on one another, that there'd be a communal thing where we could come confessing our sins to one another, praying with one another and for one another. Good times, pray with a brother and sister. Bad times, pray with a brother and sister, right? That's this. Mm, Running out of time. All right, let's go. 
Life in community and prayer in community is at the heart of the Christian story. It's at the heart of the Christian identity, that we don't just belong to Jesus, but that we belong to his body too. And that's what he's stressing here. And as far as the oil goes, this is all throughout scripture, all throughout the Old Testament. Oil is used for consecration. It's to mark a moment or an object or a person for special focus. And that's, what, that's what's happening here, is that James is saying there's moments in life where you need the extra attention of the community, the extra attention of spiritual leaders in your life to come and to just mark you, to say this is holy ground and God, we are entrusting you with this situation and with this person. And that's biblical, right? It doesn't just belong to the Pentecostals in the house, it belongs to the church of Jesus Christ, right? So I got some oil right here. No, I didn't. I didn't bring my oil. But I should have. <laughs> and this is what James is getting at. And here's, here's how he finishes, okay? And this is how we'll wrap up too. He finishes in verse 16 through 18. Watch. It'll be up here. Therefore, because of all this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Real faith leads us to real prayer, but it starts with confession. And I know that's in our Protestant circles, in our evangelical thing, we've been like, ah, oh, but confession's like a Catholic thing, right? Here's what's happened over the last several centuries of, of church history. Because we've relegated it as like, oh, it's a Catholic thing that we don't want to do it like that. Guess, what, guess what's happened? We haven't done it. We haven't cultivated a, a culture of confession. Evangelical circles, if somebody confesses sin, we bury them. And, and we just heap on guilt and shame and condemnation. We haven't created a culture and cultivated one of confession. The Greek word for confession is very interesting because it means agree with God. It means say the same thing. Confession is that we would actually come to terms with ourself and come to terms with God and that we would honestly be able to vocalize and put words to something that I either am wrestling with, struggling with, or something I have failed to do correctly. That's confession. That we would actually agree with God in our condition as sinners. So not just a Catholic thing, not at all. This is something to be practiced to lead to authentic faith. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, that's a big if, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If, that's a big if. If you don't think you have anything to be saved from, you won't be saved. If you don't think you have sins to be forgiven, you won't be forgiven. That's this if, right? So, so notice it's a posture thing first that leads to confession. It's that I'm a post I have a posture of, man, I'm, I'm broken. I'm flawed. Our culture is going to preach a gospel that's the opposite of that to us. It's going to tell us to look in the mirror and say, I'm beautiful, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I'm free, right? The Christian gospel starts with confession to say, I'm none of those things. But you are, God. And I want to be more like you. I want to know you. I want you to transform me, right? That that's where it starts. That confession is us saying, like, we have lots to be saved from. We have lots of things that are still broken and all banged up about me. And, and thank God, like, perfection isn't the mark, but progress is a part of authentic faith. So I can just celebrate my progress, right? That I'm actually making progress as I move towards God. And I'm continuing to co confess my sin and my weakness and my flaws and my frailty as he continues to just heap grace and mercy upon me. That's this. Who wouldn't want to pray if that's the posture? That God is actually saying, I want you to come to me with all your junk and not just by yourself, with others, like other brothers and sisters that you can confess sin to. I'm not going to bury you or be like, oh, brother, mm, uh. but they're going to go, you know what, me too. Let's go. Like, let's keep going, right? 
Let's pick one another up and keep going. Proverbs 28, 13. The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses it will what? Find mercy. We want mercy? Confess more sin. Confess to God and to one another. Now, I'm not telling you to get up here and grab the microphone and start confessing all of your sin. But the Bible does definitely call for us to identify a couple trusted brothers and sisters that you can say the deepest, scariest, darkest thing that you have thought, that you've felt, that you've said, that you've done, and they don't flinch. And the only thing that they do is they remind you of the goodness of our God and preach the gospel of grace to you, call you to repentance, and then pray for you. That's what we need. That's what a culture of confession does. And James here shows us, if anything, that it's confession that leads to healing. That's beautiful. It's confession that leads to healing. Maybe this is why we have so much buried sin. Maybe that's why we're a church with so many secrets in the West today. And then all of a sudden we're shocked when something real nasty and gnarly comes out and we're like, what? Well, we don't do this, right? We don't understand that healing actually comes from and through. And I'm talking spiritual healing, physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, that all of that holistically comes through us actually having an honest, true view of ourself and the good God who created us. That's what confession does in our heart. Jesus, not by accident, says that it's the truth that will set us free. And all of us have delusions of grandeur or delusions of, of a lack of value in our head about ourselves, And Jesus wants us to have a true view of ourselves, one that we are frail and needy, but fully loved, fully welcomed, fully invited into the kingdom of God by the grace of our good father. That's this. Who wouldn't want to confess, right? I read a study this week about EEG scans they're doing on the human brain and what confession does to the human brain. It's crazy. Like they're, they're showing like that confession itself, quite literally putting words to things that we are in inner turmoil about is actually healing our brains. You're like, what? It's almost like God like knew that. I don't know, right? And he like made that a thing. He's like, I'm not just gonna like heal you spiritually in a way that you can't ever really identify maybe. I'm gonna actually heal your body through confession. It's like, what? That's crazy, right? And God is saying that, that there's a holistic healing that comes from the people of God when we come and we just say, listen, like empty pockets, open hands. I'm just here to cling to the cross. And I'm confessing my own frailty and flaws and weakness because God is good and I need him. And James is anchoring prayer in confession right here. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She's an Anglican priest. Uh, she's one of my favorite Anglicans. I've got a few. Here's what she says about confession. Confession reminds us that none of us gather for worship because we're pretty good people. But we are new people. People marked by grace in spite of ourselves because of the work of Christ. Our communal practice of confession reminds us that failure in the Christian life is the norm. Phew. This means, Springvale, that we will never be a church, and I'm talking about us now, we will never be a church without sin. We'll never be a church without real struggle, but we can be a church who lives with no secrets. Amen? We can be that church. And that God promises, man, that God promises to bring healing, not just to us individually, but communally and corporately. And I'm convinced that confession in the church leads to revival outside of it. 
You know why? Because of the Bible and because of the witness of history. And I think that we can strive not to be a church without sin. That's always gonna be the fight of our flesh and the tension that we have as we follow after Jesus and fumble and stumble towards him, but that we can be a church without secrets if we practice confession. That we can live in light of verses like Hebrews 4. That we actually do have a high priest, Jesus, who isn't distant from all the things that we struggle with, but actually can sympathize because he's experienced all of it. But he hasn't just experienced all of it, he's overcome it all. And then he invites us to the throne of grace, that we can approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness. Not like timidly, but with confidence. We can stand before the throne of grace because we know we need to be there. Amen? That's this. So, I want to finish with um, one of my favorite examples of this biblically is King Solomon, who was an absolute disaster, if you, know, if you remember. And right before the dedication of the temple, there's this amazing promise that God gives to the people in covenant with him about his presence in that place in the temple, right? And then Solomon has this amazing kind of like prayer praise thing that he does. In 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, he says this. God says, and my people who bear my name, who's that? That's us. We belong to the Lord. Humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways. Confession, repentance. Then what? I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. You see the if-then condition there? Springville, what if God is waiting to pour his spirit out on Canada and heal the land based on how well we repent and confess of our own sin? What if? I'm not saying this is a manufactured thing that we can manipulate God at all, but we can get serious about real faith, real prayer, confession of sin, that we can make sure that we actually create a safe place in the church of Jesus Christ for confession of sin, and that we can go and walk covered in grace and mercy, and that we can humble ourselves before a good God who wants to forgive us. That's this. So let's just take a minute before we kind of move on. We are gonna have communion this morning, which again is just us practicing the fact that we need that same forgiveness and grace and mercy. Let's just take a minute. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's something that you haven't yet started to deal with that you've just buried. Certain thoughts, certain behaviors that you've yet to bring into the light. Or it's, it's those repeated ones that you've already brought them into the light and you're just still trying to kill them. Or it's something else entirely. I don't know. But I just want to give us a minute to pause and just create space for for us, just, just right now between us and God. Now, we might have to leave here and go and find somebody this week, a brother or a sister or a trusted friend that we can go and say the same thing to. But right now, let's just take a minute before I pray for us corporately just to have that moment of, of confession and understand that God's posture is that he wants us to come to him. Let's just take a minute now and do that. <laughs> 